Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. This is The Guardian. You can't put the fire out while you're pouring petrol on it. And I want to be clear about this. We all have differences of views with Labor on targets. But as a starting point, we can't make the problem worse. Hello, lovely people of Pods. Welcome to the show. You're with Catherine Murphy, the host, and you are on Australian politics. And with me, delightfully, is Adam Bant, leader of the Greens. Hi, Catherine. Yeah, really nice to be here. Good. Look, we've got heaps to catch up on because uh, there's obviously been a really interesting election result. The 47th Parliament is about to open and there's a bunch of things. But let's just knock off... The issue that everyone is kind of coalescing around, given what's going to happen in the opening two sitting weeks. So obviously Chris Bowen has, uh, and Anthony Albanese have said they will introduce legislation giving effect to the 43% emissions reduction target over the first parliamentary fortnight. Now indulge me, Adam. (laughs) You You could add lots of supplementary words, but I want to start just to keep this comprehensible to people listening, really. So... My question is, will you support that legislation? Let's open with the words, yes, no, maybe. And then you can add as many supplementary words as you like. We haven't decided our position on that yet. We've got a number of senators who have just taken up office, like, you know, 10 days ago, and they'll be involved in that very important decision. And um, we'll, when we see the full legislation that's introduced. We'll go through our usual processes of meeting and having a discussion. So we do not have a position at the moment um, on that legislation. Sorry, and I'm not, you know, this is a conversation rather than an interrogation. But um, so then it sounds to me like you're not going to have a position until Parliament resumes. Well, we'll sit down and have a discussion with our new team and we need to see the legislation. Uh, We'll be having a discussion. Hopefully, if the government wants to have discussions, we'll have discussions with the government about the approach that they want to take on climate. Um, I can't tell you when right now, uh, but uh, because I've We've got colleagues. We'll sit down and go through our usual processes, but it's something that we take very seriously. Like yeah. This isn't, a, you know, we know, especially after this election, as you said, where there's you know, been a bigger than ever uh, representation of third voices in the parliament, Greens, climate independents who yeah. want more action on climate. The government, you know, less than a third of the people across the country voted for the government. There is a really strong desire 
to see parties work together, including on climate. So it's a responsibility we take very seriously. Yep. Perhaps we can have a discussion about the, the merits and otherwise of the government's yeah. position, yeah. but um, that's it's a position that we're not going to be rushed into because we understand the importance of it. Yeah, okay. Have you met as a party room yet after the election? Uh, we're going to be meeting. Uh, we have met as a party room. Yep. We've we've met as a party room to um, uh, elect a new leadership team. Yep. Uh, we've of allocated yep. our portfolios. portfolios. Yep. And um, we're now uh, getting together face to face in the lead up to the upcoming parliament. Yeah. Obviously, climate will be one of the things that we'll be discussing because it's critical. There's various bits of that. There's the targets. Yep. There's coal and gas. Yep. Which is critical um, for us. But there's an, I mean, one of the lessons that we take from the election is that a record number of people voted for the Greens, including for the first time, because we offered a climate alternative yep. around greater ambition and action on coal and gas. But we also offered an economic alternative. Yes. And in the lead up to what the government is billing as their first budget or their mini budget before the end of the year, those questions about whether we're going to tackle some you know, rising inequality things like stage three tax cuts, um, there are also going to be things that we'll be discussing because a lot of people, as I say, voted for us because they could see Australia becoming more unequal and they want us to push the government to act on it. Yeah, okay. Let's, uh, it's sort of going to be hard to tease some of these things out in the absence of a formal position, uh, but, but let's have a go. You've nominated oil and gas uh, developments as being an important component, right, of, uh, of what happens over this parliamentary term. Uh, I suppose the question really is, do you need to bundle up all of uh, the things you're concerned about on the climate side of the ledger in terms of the substance of the thing? Does all of that need to be bundled up in this first vote or not? Well, we were pretty clear before the election that... We're happy to have a discussion with the government about targets, about mechanisms. Um, we have a discussion during the term of this parliament about how quickly we get out of coal and gas and how we cut emissions and how we support workers through the transition. Yeah. But we think everyone should be able to agree while we're having those discussions in parliament, we shouldn't be making the problem worse by opening new coal and gas projects. Yeah. And that's something that's critical for us. And we do see them as being linked because if we have a discussion in Parliament on Monday and pass legislation to reduce emissions, but on Tuesday, the government goes out and opens the Beedaloo Basin that will add 13% mm. to Australia's emissions, mm. up to that, according to the scientists, then it undoes the work that we've just done in Parliament. And so understanding whether this government is going to keep backing new coal and gas projects adding not only to global emissions, but adding to Australia's emissions profile, when those new projects aren't included in Labor's 43% modelling is critical. Yeah. Because um, as we understand it at the moment, Labor's proposing a 43% target, not a science-based number. Um, it's not a target that's consistent with one and a half degrees or with two degrees mm. even, mm. or well below two degrees anyway. But if we then pass that and then the next day they turn around and have these projects that aren't included in their modelling, then it is going to make the climate task much, much harder. But, but uh, those projects, though, uh, obviously would be covered, uh, you know, there would be covered entities in the safeguard mechanism. Obviously, if you have a, a trajectory to 2030 uh, that is, uh, you know, 43% or, or above, right, it's a floor, not a ceiling, 
you know, those entities are covered. Well, yeah? Would they? Would they be? Um, the, well, why, there's why, a lot why wouldn't of, there be? Well, let's look at the West Australian Labor example. In the Labor government in Western Australia, the uh, Environment Protection Agency there said new gas projects can't go ahead unless they can show that they're going to offset the massive emissions yep. that come from them. Yep. And the federal government, uh, the state government, Labor government, came in and overrode that and said, no, they get a free pass. We're going to give them a free pass. What approach is this Labor government going to take? They clearly have said, and the Resources Minister has said repeatedly, that they want to see new coal and gas projects opened and they don't see it as in any way being consistent with the very, very modest goals that they set. Yeah. We can't see how you square those two. We can't see how you take climate action, reduce Australia's emissions and also um, are faithful to what the International Energy Agency, the UN, the climate scientists are saying, which is that to reach even net zero by 2050, yeah. there can be no new infrastructure. Yeah. No, no, no. All but true. they still say, yeah. they still Labor still seems to say you can have both and you can't have both. Well, and so this is where the rubber is going to hit the road. Yeah, yeah. And this is what yeah. we want to hear from the government. And um, look, if we can resolve all of that in the first six months of this government, no one will be happier than me. But, but does I it... suspect that Labor will continue to want to open up new coal and gas projects, and that's going to be um, something that uh, that will have a difference of views on, and we're going to have to push them on. Yeah, but hang five. Like, is uh, just so I understand your position correctly, if Chris Bowen came to you tomorrow, I mean, I'm not suggesting this will happen, but if he did, and said you know, Beedaloo, all of these different gas projects will be covered by the safeguard mechanism, therefore either have to offset their emissions or at least, you know, or, or set them on a downward trajectory. Is that sufficient? Look, the devil's going to be in the detail about all of this. And I guess what we want, uh, the, the starting point, though, is that the government, their approach is you can take climate action while still opening new coal and gas projects. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? Yeah. And we don't agree. Yeah. We don't agree. Now, um, there's we can have a discussion about how existing projects are covered within the safeguard mechanism, but there is no basis climate-wise, economy-wise, for saying that we can open up new coal and gas yeah, projects. Yeah. And if, if the government leaves that open and says that they will allow new coal and gas projects to be uh, continue to be opened, then we don't see how they're serious about climate action and we don't see how it's consistent with even their weak target. Yeah, no, no, I understand. But but just again, so I understand properly and so the listeners understand properly. So the position is then that uh, all of these entities need to be covered under the safeguard mechanism and there be no more. Is that the position? We Yes, we, we, we're happy to have a discussion about mechanisms, about how we get there. We've got our own preferred approach, which is a legislated phase-out of coal exports between now and 2030 and um, an orderly replacement of coal-fired power stations with uh, renewables between now and 2030. But we're happy to have a discussion with the government. They've got a different approach. The government's got a different approach, which is they want a safeguard mechanism. We're happy to have a discussion with the government about mechanism and to see what is the best way of doing this to ensure that it works. But to answer your question, the separate to that is this question about opening up new projects. And we've been very clear, we don't see any basis for opening up any new projects. And so um, that 
is a point of difference between us and the government at the moment. But then what's the Commonwealth's leverage there? I agree with you that obvious for, for obvious reasons, Labor is trying to walk both sides of the street on this, but what's the Commonwealth's le- uh, leverage in terms of, you know, if a state government tomorrow decides to proceed, you know, with opening up a new development, obviously the answer is the EPBC Act and Tanya Plibersek is the leverage, but... You know, can the Commonwealth just what? What 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 do you want, Adam? Do you want some blanket moratorium, or what do you want? Yes, we want a moratorium on new coal, oil, and gas projects. Like we, this is climate, right? This is we're at a critical time, and um, it's not just us who are saying this. This is what our Pacific Island neighbours are saying this week. Mm, sure, uh, it's what the United Nations are saying. It's what the International Energy Agency is saying. There has to be. I mean, this thing about the Catherine, there has to be a point of time in history where Australia and the world says we're not going to open up any more new coal yeah, and gas sure. projects. Yeah. That point has to be now. Yeah. But, but, but does the Commonwealth yes, actually does, have the power it to does. do that? So there's got, well, say two things. Numerous sources of power. It's got power with respect to export permits. Yeah, sure. It's got environmental approvals. Yeah. Remember, of course, it yeah. was Susan Lay, the former environment minister, who got taken to court over approval of... Um, uh, new coal projects. Yep. So there's clearly federal involvement. Yeah. If we think the Commonwealth currently has the legislative power, if the Commonwealth, if there's a view, if there's a difference of view about that, then we're happy to pass a law to make it clear that the Commonwealth um, has the legislative power to stop new projects going ahead. We think they've got it. If we need to tidy it up, we'll tidy it up. But the question is whether there's the political will there to do it at the moment. And at the moment, from the government, they're saying no. They want to pass a law, but then keep on opening up new coal and gas projects. And that's the point of difference. Yeah. Look, electorally, though, Labor would obviously not be in power now. They would not be in the position that they're in and perhaps would not have got to a minority government position in this last election uh, if, uh, if they hadn't held or hadn't gained four seats in WA, held their positions in the Northern Territory, held the Hunter Valley coal seats. Like this, they wouldn't be there now. We would be, we could, look, maybe they'd be there in minority, it's possible, but, you know, equally possible Scott Morrison would be there in minority right now. So there's sort of two issues. Well, well there's so many issues. You know, you know, I could do three hours on this. <laughs> there's what the science says, which I'm not just, you know, whoosh-whooshing away. What the science says is critical. What all the, you know, the international bodies have said about this, also critical. But the fact of the matter is, you know, we've got two major parties in Australia. The last, the, the record of the last 10 years is one of those major parties will take action on climate change. We can argue whether it's enough, but, but you know, one will take action, the other one will not, and worse, actually, <laughs> actually take retrograde steps. So how do you expect, Adam, the Labor Party to square the circle between what it said during the election and what you want after it? I think... We're putting on the table a very reasonable proposition. We're saying, let's have a discussion over this term of parliament about how we get out of existing coal and gas in a way that supports workers. We put a transition plan front and centre of our election plan. I spent a lot of time in regional Queensland, in regional New South Wales, talking about a transition plan that puts job security and wage security at the centre. So let's have that discussion. And that's a discussion about targets. That's a discussion about mechanisms. We're up for that discussion. Right? We've got a view. We've got a comprehensive platform. We're happy to have good faith discussions about that. 
And if we can meet somewhere, then we meet somewhere. But what we're putting on the table is a very reasonable proposition that I think is uh, just as clear in all of those places that you mentioned and has widespread support across the, uh, across the public, which is don't make the problem worse by opening new projects. Yeah. So we're talking about projects that don't yet exist, projects that don't yet employ anyone, right? We're yeah. saying yeah. don't open those up. And while you, when you stop opening those up, then let's have the discussion about what we do about the existing ones. Yeah. Now, you make the point about the election. Labor's vote went backwards, mm. right? Labor went out there saying we want more coal and gas mines and their vote went backwards. Yeah. Less than a third of the country voted for Labor. More people voted for the Greens than ever before. Yeah. Why? Which we'll get because to. Because we, well, we're, we're, we're there. <laughs> we, we, we put front and centre a very clear position, which is you can't put the fire out while you're pouring petrol on it. And I want to be clear about this. We all have differences of views with Labor on targets. We all have differences of views with Labor on how to get out of coal and gas, how quickly to get out of coal and gas. We will spend the next period of this parliament hopefully working together on that. But as a starting point, we can't make the problem worse. Right? We can't open up new coal and gas projects. And that is, I think, something that can be agreed on across the political spectrum, um, across the parliament, and it's the position we took to the election and it's part of the reason our vote went up. Labor said they the parties that wanted to expand coal and gas, the Labor and Coalition, both saw their votes go backwards. Yeah, yeah. But, I mean, not just because they wanted to expand coal and gas, though, obviously. But I mean, my point is, look at what happened in Queensland, yeah. right? Look at what happened in Queensland. Yeah, I want to look at what happened the in Queensland. The parties that said, stop opening up new coal and gas projects and instead make these coal and gas billionaires pay their fair share of tax and use it to build a better life for everyone, we saw our votes go up. Yeah, in metropolitan Brisbane, you did. Not not beyond that place, though. Did Labor's pro-coal and gas stance Serve them win in them Queensland. seats in Queensland? No, it didn't. No. So uh, this is my point. Yeah. Things have shifted, right? It's not 2019. It's not, right? It's not 2019. Well, we now, we have just not. seen, we have just, well, this is, I don't think the government's caught up with this yeah, yet, yeah. right? And we have just seen people across our country suffer floods and the floods may continue to get worse next year if there's another La Nina, La Nina as, has, as has been um, suggested. Off the back of threes of droughts and fires, people understand the climate crisis is real and people do not understand why you would want to go and open up a new coal and gas mine right mm. now. And mm. the government might have thought it was on a winner by saying we can keep opening up coal and gas mines and mining coal past the 2050s. It's not what the public thought. Yeah. Like the public did not flock to them. Like they did not, they, their vote went backwards. It, it, that's, yeah, yeah, I'm not, I'm not contesting that in any shape or form. But the, the point I was making is that they wouldn't be in government now had they not thread the needle through it, their traditional blue-collar territories and through, you know, through the cities. But anyway, let's, because we've got lots of ground to cover and I don't want to get us completely in this cul-de-sac and, you know, talk about nothing else with you. But it, again... Sorry, so, sorry to just, can I just say very quickly, yeah, we do want to move on, but I think it's consistent. I think you can say, let's have a workable transition plan for existing coal and gas workers that we work on together and hopefully get cross-party support. Yeah but not make the problem worse. And I think people will accept that. I think all of those audiences that you just mentioned, that the government's got to speak to, that we spoke to during the election, accept the proposition. 
that provided we do it in a managed way, we shouldn't make the problem worse. I don't think it causes them any political grief to say stop opening up new coal and gas projects. They, they would have to seek a mandate for it, though. I mean, that's the issue. So this is, this is I guess, why I'm sort of, uh, you know, giving giving you the, you know, what what is it? What's that, you know, the... The, the, the hundredth degree, the tenth of what, I, I don't know, anyway, whatever. Um, you know, this is why I'm sort of trying to understand exactly how this process is working for you, right? The problem everyone's going to have is we're going to have a piece of legislation in the parliament in the opening two sitting weeks. Boom, there it is. So you guys are going to have to make a decision about whether or not you bank the improvement in ambition or whether you you know, sit on the other side of the chamber with the Liberal Party. Like, that's the decision you're going to have to make over this first two weeks. What you're talking about is a more substantial plan, you know, for for the transition, which is obviously what the science tells us we need. But, you know, I don't think the Labor Party could all of a sudden flip, you know, to that position without seeking an electoral mandate. Otherwise, we're back in the nonsense carbon tax territory. I I guess I disagree because I think everyone is crystal clear that at some point we have to stop opening up coal and gas. Just look at the Pacific Island Forum this week, for example. Tuvalu and now um, Palau come out and say, oh, Labor's target needs to be higher. Labor needs to stop opening coal and gas mines. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, this this is going to continue to grow. Oh, I know. And yeah, I would yeah, hope yeah. that, yeah. and it's growing and it's growing quickly. And like, we've we've suffered under you know nearly a decade of a terrible government mm. that has denied climate change mm. as a reality mm-hmm. and that has um, made uh, and has and has held back global progress. And so there is a real sense which I which I welcome that Australia is finally at the table. Like this is good. It is good that Australia is finally at the table. But I think what we're going to find very quickly is that the discussion in the rest of the world has moved on far more quickly than it has in Australia. Yes. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. Yeah. I would, I think in light of those changing circumstances, in light of like our immediate neighbours saying to us, please stop opening coal and gas projects, it's perfectly legitimate for the government to turn around and say, well, we're hearing now and we're reporting back to you, the people, the things that the previous government refused to tell the truth on. Um, this is what they want. Um, we are going to work with them to make it happen. But if it were to be a two-term strategy rather than here and now, if uh, you know the Labor Party said to you, "Look, you know we agree, we agree on the science, we agree broadly. Obviously, there's a transition there to manage. You know, this is something we talk about. You know, we work towards over two terms." sufficient or not? If they wanted to talk to us about a strategy to deal with coal and gas, we'd love to have the conversation. And I, I'm not going to put anything in or off, on or off the table like yeah. that. But at the moment, we're not there. At the moment, we're not there because the government is saying it's our way or the highway and yeah. we want to keep opening up coal and gas projects. And the question will be um, whether uh, there is scope for discussion because I think there's, you know, it's time for a reality check for everyone. Like, yes, it's it's uh, no one celebrated, you know, as much as us. Well, pr- pr- probably other people did celebrate more. I'm sure the prime minister celebrated more to to find out that he was the prime minister. But like, we were thrilled to see the end of the coalition government, um, and hopefully, like, long may it stay that way. And and there's every chance that um, with their with their new orientation that it will. But now in the parliament, we've got a greater third-party voice than ever before. And now is the time to understand that to get things done in this parliament, 
where the Greens have got balance of power in the Senate and the biggest third party ever in the Senate, we're going to need to work together, right? And and the question is, is the government up for that? And at the moment, I don't know the answer. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, again... <laughs> Sorry, this is we're sort of flogging this much harder than I intended, but you've sort of you've opened a lot of doors in the conversation that are genuinely fascinating, will be for the listeners too, right? In terms of all these calculations. Like I promise you, we're moving on after this. Uh, you know, you you say to me, Adam, we're delighted to see the back of the coalition government. We celebrated the fact that we've got a progressive government in Australia after 10 years and all the wrecking on climate change. Uh are you really going to sit with the Liberal Party on the other side of the chamber in this in this vote about improving ambition? Well, it's I, like, like in the real world, is that going to happen? I also celebrate the fact that we've got a progressive parliament and the government, like Labor squeaked to a majority with a declining vote. How did that happen? A lot of Greens voters voted one Greens and then gave Labor their preferences, yep. right? Yep. And that's a reason a lot of those Labor MPs are sitting there. And the government then has a mandate, if you want to call it that, to get its legislation through the lower house. Yeah. It's got a majority. But if it wants to bring something to parliament, it's got to understand the composition of the parliament. Yeah. Right? No, no, no. All, so all that's crystal clear. All, all I'm saying yeah. is that if that we're up for a collaborative approach because on climate, but also on a bunch of other yeah, areas, yeah, yeah. Yep. like this could be one of the great reforming parliaments of our time. Like we could get so many things done. Like the the last decade was a decade of um, uh, uh, not only a lack of transparency but of an undermining of a number of key institutions. Yep. Um, we in this parliament could make some big structural change that ensures progressive Australia lives on for many decades to come, right? And we're and so I'm actually quite optimistic about the prospects in this parliament. Um, but to make that happen, there needs to be an understanding that, yes, they're the government, but no, they don't have a majority in the Senate. And in fact, we've got a greater say in the Senate than before. And does that mean we can get everything we want? No, of course it doesn't. But doesn't mean that to get things done, for ministers to get things done in their portfolio areas, for the Prime Minister to be able to have a legacy of achievement, they're going to need to work with us. And that's all I'm saying. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, and and I appreciate you going through it in, in the level of detail that we've gone through it in this conversation. I think that'll be valuable for people to understand that. But I just can't see it myself. <laughs> you sitting on the same side of the chamber as the Liberal Party after the last 10 years. Well, the Labor Party routinely sits on the same side as the Liberal Party. No, but I'm just like talking about... to open about, up coal and no, gas, no, to look, open up the no, Beedaloo no, 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 Basin. Look, you and I don't that. have to do this. You and I don't have to do this, OK? It's like, I, you know, I understand and, and pay and acknowledge your bona fides on this issue and how hard you have worked in order to try and make climate action a reality in this country. And I'm, I'm asking that question through that prism of respect, right? You've worked your backside off to basically get us to this point in your own sphere. And you're telling me there's some proposition that you will sit on the same side of the chamber as the Liberal Party. Well, what I would hope is that before it comes to a vote, the government's willing to talk with us because we've got three years of this parliament, right? And if the government's approach to every bill that comes to this parliament is take it or leave it, and if you don't like it, you can vote against it, then we've got to respond within that within that sphere, right? If they're, if they're the guidelines that the government is going to set, 
that uh, that even though they don't have a majority in the Senate, you can take or leave everything, then it'll be the government that sets that up. And what I am hoping is that before it comes to that, that the government is prepared to... Look, I understand that they've just won an election and they want to be seen to be saying that they're in charge. I get that. But... Um, if they want to pass legislation through Parliament, they're going to have to work with parliamentarians. And I hope that before anything comes to a vote, there's a, a, a willingness to talk. Otherwise, it's going to be a very long three years. <laughs> I'm just, sorry, I've just, just indulged me on the exhaustion that just naturally <laughs> follows that observation. Anyway, um, okay. Uh, I think we've I think we've covered that as extensively as we can on current non-non. So let's just let's pivot out now into the election result. Tell me about Brisbane and what happened there. Probably three things. The one was a very very strong ground game that um, has been going on for a number of years. The Greens won the uh, Brisbane City Council yeah, seat, which yeah. uh, Jonathan's three, which to people outside of Brisbane might seem like, oh, well, it's a council seat, but it's actually, it's a big deal. It's the equivalent, effectively the equivalent of a state seat. Yeah. There's single member wards across a very big and well-resourced council. So it was the equivalent of winning a state seat in Parliament yeah. geographically. Yeah. And um, that, uh, and since he's been in, there's been uh, a great effort of community re-engagement in politics. And that then continued at the state election where we now hold two seats yeah. in that bastion of democracy, the Queensland Parliament. And that campaign, that people-powered campaign, um, kept on going after the state election and uh, all, all the way through to the point where in Griffith, uh, by the time the federal election rolled around, the, uh, the, the supporters and volunteers there had knocked on every door in the electorate. And... Um, had had uh, around about 30,000 conversations with people yeah. in the electorate, yeah. many of them from the candidate, now MP, Max Chandler Mather himself. So it was a really strong people-powered campaign. Second thing is we were clear offering a climate alternative and uh, we made it very clear that the question of climate is a question about coal and gas and we wanted to stop opening coal and gas mines and we especially wanted to stop public money going to coal and gas. Third, we offered an economic alternative. Uh, and this is pretty critical because the, uh, we said very clearly that if you make billionaires and big corporations pay their fair share of tax, we can do things like get dental into Medicare. That contrasted very much with the approach that Labor was taking. Hmm. Uh, Labor spent a lot of time in Queensland saying that we're just like the Morrison government and what people heard was, oh, so the guys who are in power are terrible, but you're just like them. Yeah. So yeah. why should so we vote for you? there wasn't enough differentiation. What uh, do you think, though? I mean, like paying all that, right, obviously, and the, the fascinating thing, I think, about your evolving ground game, like you you basically pioneered this for the Greens. You're, you know, you have a, you know, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? A, a notorious, but in a good way, right? Like your, you know, your ground game is what got you a lower house seat in the House of Representatives, and now you're building out your ground game, your machine, basically from the local council level, which is, you know, fascinating, and, and you've been through that. Do you reckon you would have uh, won Ryan 
uh, or even Brisbane had a teal stood in those contests? Because it's sort of like, it's, it's an interesting question that we could play out in a number of different electorates. Like, you know, would Labor have won Higgins, for example, if a teal had run in Higgins? What do you think in Brisbane if a teal had run? Don't know. You'd have to ask sort of other commentators about that. I mean, we announced our target seats quite early. And um, one of the things that in the interviews that I had, media interviews immediately after the election, a lot of people were saying, oh, we didn't see this coming. And we said, well, hang on, we go back a couple of years and you'll find that um, we were saying very clearly we've got a number of target seats in the uh, across the country and Brisbane and Ryan were on those. Yeah, definitely. And um, yeah. we... Uh, oh, the, and we all horribly discounted you too. The, gr- you know. the ground yes. game yeah. was included there, yeah. and maybe maybe others shaped their strategy around us, having yeah. seen that we were there. I don't know. Yeah. Like, I just I, I just Possible. don't know. Yeah. Um, but I think one of the things that shows is that I think one of the, one of the myths that puts to bed is that the Greens only win in seats that are Labor seats. Like yeah. we've now we've got four seats in the House of Representatives, two previously held by Labor, two yeah. previously held by the Liberals. Yeah. And um, we, I think one of the things I think that uh, uh, those seats have in common and I think is uh, perhaps something to do with Queensland is that I think outside of Queensland there's this uh, view that somehow Queenslanders are inherently conservative. Yep. And you see that being played out certainly in the government's election strategy of that they've got a, some, you know, Labor has to be just like the Liberals in order to win seats in Queensland. Yeah. We think that's a misreading of Queensland. We think there's a there's a strong understanding in Queensland, perhaps more, it's across the country, but perhaps it's more concentrated in mm. Queensland, mm. that politics as usual isn't working for people. Mm. And they see billionaires and big corporations get special treatment and a free ride while everyone else does it tough. Now, up to date, there have been right-wing parties that have tried to capture on what they perceive to be disaffection. Yep. We offered a strong alternative that said politics can work for you and part of that was an economic alternative. Yeah. And I think that um, you saw that play out across the seats in Brisbane. Mm. Like it was this very clear acceptance that politics as usual isn't working. The Greens uh, are able to take the fight up not only on climate and integrity grounds but on economic grounds yeah. to make things work for and, you and, and people responded. Do you think that's really sort of the core of how you've jumped the fence? Because obviously if we sort of look at the trajectory of the grains, right, you sort of, you've been treading water for, a, you know, a few election cycles. Obviously you, you, you arrived, you grew, uh, you know, you took some House of Representatives territory but then there's sort of been this period of plateau, right, where... You're not going backwards, but you're not going forwards either. So you did go forwards this time. And obviously part of the explanation for that is, is you know, the pandemic and the change in sensibility in the country. And like, so there's all this stuff that's out of your control is what I mean. But in terms of what's in your control, in terms of crashing through that House of Re- Representatives lock, do you think it's the, the economic narrative that got you there? I think it's a critical part of it. And uh, in... Melbourne, where we've grown our vote for um, over over successive elections, it's got it's the electorate that's got most public housing in Victoria yeah. and one of the highest concentrations in the country. Yeah. And we have been at pains over the, over years in Melbourne to point out to people there that we will fight for you and your economic interest just as strongly as we'll fight for action on climate. Mm, mm, and mm. that 
um, when people hear us pushing to lift Newstart above the poverty line or to make billionaires and big corporations pay their fair share of tax, people respond because it's a message you're not hearing from anyone yeah. else and it's something yeah. we genuinely believe. Yeah. And so, yes, I, I do think that... And the, the cost of the election was, um, uh, in many respects, and hats off to... Uh, the unions and indeed the Labor Party for getting cost of living so centrally as yeah. part of the election campaign. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the, uh, but they, they were very real pressures. That wasn't a confected thing. They were very real pressures, low, low wage growth. In fact, wages going backwards for many people, yeah. cost of living increasing. It, it was a, a key element of our, uh, of our election campaign and will continue to be a key element of what we pushed this parliament to yeah. say um, we, we have the plans to tackle that and they're realistic, they're costed, um, we can afford all of these things that will make your life better. And that w- we put that uh, those elements very uh, as a key part of our campaign. And when yeah. we released our um, shortlist of negotiating points prior to the election, those, uh, I guess, cost of living and inequality measures featured very centrally in that as well. And that's we're going to continue to push to, to, to offer an economic alternative. And you're going to see that uh, in this election, uh, in this term of parliament rather, um, that is going to come up recurrently, including around stage three tax yeah, cuts. Yeah. Like there's 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 going to be a number of points this elect of this term of parliament where we think the the institutional framework of progressive Australia is at risk if we dismantle our progressive taxation system yeah. during this term of parliament, we'll suffer for it for generations. Yeah, yeah. And so that's yes, uh, economics an economic alternative that spoke to people's real needs and that offered an alternative was was a key part Yeah, of well, it. it's been a hallmark of your leadership too because obviously you retooled the climate debate through a materialist lens rather than the sort of post-material great moral challenge of our time type lens. Anyway, it's just, it's quite interesting. Just, um, I, I'm sure we're on the clock and, uh, you know, I'm... Uh, we could we could keep going. Anyway, but you've got to get out of here. Um, I'm sort of fascinated and I imagine a lot of other politics tragics are as well because... You know, hindsight's a wonderful thing, but it's almost like when you look at the the pattern of this election result, this particular election result, it's sort of like, you know, the progressive forces in Australian politics sort of, uh, you know, held a secret meeting in a basement somewhere and carved up the, you know, the sort of the, the potential territory of the country, right, when you look at it, right? You guys gain in Brisbane, Labor gains seats, you know, a couple of seats in Sydney, uh, you know, a couple of seats in Victoria. The Teals obviously now have created this amazing buffer state in Australian politics. You know, was there a secret meeting in a basement? There, there wasn't a secret <laughs> meeting in a basement. Um, but th- this is why, in part for the reasons that you just said, this is why I'm actually really excited about this period because it's, uh, it, it provides... When you, when you think about the connections that can be made now across those various constituencies that you just spoke about yeah. and the appetite that there is now for action on a number of things that one, two terms of parliament ago, you, you might have thought it very difficult yeah, to get some things through. Yeah. But now we can, right? And so, no, there wasn't a basement meeting last time, but I think this this in this parliament, if we do work together and keep the lines of communication open and have discussions about the things that we're all that we all want to see action on, we, we could get a lot done. And, you know, there's there's like if the Liberal Party thinks the answer to their drubbing is to install Peter Dutton and then 
um, they may well be in opposition for a very long time. Well, it's sort of, look, at, at one level, yes. At another level, I think it's pretty easy and it sort of goes back to, you know, the sort of territory we were prosecuting when we were talking about 43%. I think it's pretty easy for Peter Dutton to make some inroads into traditional Labor territory with, a, you know, continued weaponisation of climate and cost of living, right? But anyway, put that to one side. Let's, let's uh, Do you accept, though, look, I mean, I, I love the enthusiasm, right? Like, we've got this result, we need to bank this result, we can sort of, you know, broaden out a conversation to a whole range of progressive things. But there's always a risk, when progressives get their hands on the levers, Australians sometimes, you know, give them give them that, but then recoil a cycle later because everything's gone too fast, there hasn't been an appropriate explanation, or that, that phenomenon we were talking about a minute ago about seeking of mandates. I think it is really important, actually, when you're in an environment where trust is low, which explains the fragmentation of the major party system and the erosion of that, where trust is really low, I think waltzing in and, and you know, dropping the hammer on a whole lot of stuff that you've not foregrounded to people during an election cycle will actually kill you. Do you acknowledge that? Uh, can I take a different approach, which is that there's, again, there's, I think we've got everyone's got to step back and, and have a reality check and look at what actually happened and whose vote went up and whose vote went down and why. And I know that everyone will tell these stories and yep. there'll be a contest for, for, um, for the reasons why and there, there always is after every election. I think, to, let's take a concrete example, I think if uh, we in the first budget said um, we're going to stop fossil fuel subsidies and instead use that money to get dental into Medicare, mm. I think it would be people would love it, yep. right? And I think that the answer to your question is that people will look at this term of look at this government, and they will say, "You had power. How did you use it to make our lives better?" Mm. Right? Mm. And um, w whether or not something was part of the election platform that they read at that particular time, I think people are going to judge it on its results. And this is why I say like, a key part of our election campaign on the climate front was to spend time in the Hunter, was to spend time in Gladstone, was to talk to people about what it actually means to ensure job and wage security as we move forward. Like, yes, I accept that as we make these changes and drive them through, we have to bring people with us. And mm -hmm. we were really, really clear. Coal and gas workers are not the enemy. We are all in this together. We have to come up with a plan that looks after everyone. So I, I agree with you on that. Like, the, And that's but that's and that's been lacking. Like, there's no transition plan coming from the government, none from the opposition. Like, we're at least trying to put something on the table. But I think people will reward governments and political parties that have the courage to take on vested interests to make people's lives better. Mm. And if we do that, I, I think that that there's there's every reason that um, that they'll be rewarded for it. I don't think the hammer will come down, as you say, whatever the metaphor was that you used. I, I, think, I think people will say, "Oh my goodness, you've had power." And you used it to make the big corporations pay their fair share of tax and now I can go to the dentist and put, using my Medicare card. People would love that. Mm. 
we'll see, I guess. Adam Bant, thank you. I appreciate you making the time for this conversation, which I think is an important one, ahead of the new uh, opening of the new parliament in a couple of weeks. Thank you to Miles Martignoni, who's the EP of this show. Thank you to you guys for listening and commenting and all of the above. I imagine that Adam and I will get a fair amount of correspondence courtesy of this conversation through our social media channels. Anyway, you know how to track us down. The Parliament is coming. It's coming. It's only, in, I think, two weeks away or something, although I, my sense of time and space is getting a little bit addled. Uh, anyway, we'll be back next week. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.